Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pim, we are over the weekend uh, setting up the best way to discuss uh, the senator from Arizona. My first name was Stravitas. Yes, Admiral uh, James George Stavridis. Well, James Stavridis. Yeah. I said, let's get Admiral Stavridis out, of course, at Tufts. And, of course, this wonderful book, Sea Power, uh, which uh, talks about our oceans, uh, is, well, uh, Admiral, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Your thoughts on John McCain? Well, let me start. Uh, we've been talking correctly about what it means for the nation to lose John McCain, if, if I may. I want to tell you what it means for the Navy to lose. John That's exactly McCain. what I wanted. He is, uh, he really is a legend starting uh, back at the Naval Academy where he was the ultimate uh, bad boy. He had more demerits than anybody in his class. He graduated at the absolute bottom of his class. He got away with everything and he was beloved for it. Flash forward, incredible heroism in Vietnam. We all know that. Um, and then consistently for the rest of his life, the Navy continued to be a touchstone. He was the son and grandson of two four-star admirals. And I can tell you, as a four-star admiral myself, that is not an easy position. I look at my own children in the Navy struggling with that. John McCain was an icon for this nation, but even more so for the U.S. Navy. We will miss him deeply. Who are the new John McCains in the Navy? If you go to Annapolis today, who are the new John McCains? How do you build them today? We are fortunate that the service academies, and here I'll, I'll grudgingly admit the place just up the river called West Point uh, does a pretty good job. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. As Thank it, you. As, as does the Air Force Academy <laughs> in Colorado Springs. I wasn't aware of them all, either. <laughs> and all those academies um, are all about duty, honor, country. They are all driven by honor codes that say we will not lie, cheat, or steal. And they produce people to throw a name out like Admiral Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, four-star admiral, uh, as straight as, as an arrow, an extraordinary leader. Uh, there are plenty of John McCain's out there these days. Admiral Stavridis, uh, John McCain was a naval aviator, and that also had an effect on the way people look at appropriations and the power that the U.S. Navy is able to project. I'm wondering if you could just comment on his role as a naval aviator and what legacy he will leave there. Yeah, I, I have to begin by saying that uh, I came out of the academy and I wanted to be a naval aviator, you know, like Goose and Maverick and Top Gun. By the way, the remake is coming out soon. Uh, and I could never do it because every time I did a barrel roll, I lost my lunch in the cockpit. So I have enormous respect uh, for these aviators. And really, that ability to project power from sea on these massive aircraft carriers, 80 combat aircraft on the decks of each, seven acres, those sovereign American acres that go anywhere. Uh, they can move a thousand miles in a day. These are extraordinary machines of war, but they are useless without these naval aviators like John McCain. You commanded the uh, Enterprise Carrier Strike Group, and that conducted operations in the Persian Gulf, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. What's changed 
in terms of the use of aircraft carriers to project not just military force, but political influence? What's really changed uh, since I had command of Enterprise, and we were doing simultaneous operations in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and over the Horn of Africa, that, that incredible operational flexibility, that ability to maneuver, that has not changed. But what has changed is the rise of peer navies, notably China and Russia, have become much more capable at sea. So instead of, if you will, getting uh, open sea space to move those carriers and simply launch those strikes, Today, our carriers have to worry about uh, other navies at sea who can compete with us, like China and Russia. That means we have to be better at missile defense, better at anti-submarine warfare, better at protecting the carrier at sea than we had to previously. Admiral, uh, to to finish up with our discussion of John McCain, before we get back to more important uh, international relations matters with your work at Tufts Fletcher School, Al Hunt, in his beautiful essay, mentions John Glenn. And I I think there's not enough said about, you know, we know of McCain over Vietnam, but the technology of the Korean War that Ted Williams and John Glenn flew in was, is medieval? Is is medieval the right word? Yes, medieval is the right word. And uh, you're right to mention both of those uh, legends, especially John Glenn, who was, a lifelong naval aviator. He was a a U.S. Marine Corps, and of course, they're part of the Department of the Navy. And they flew basically flying crates that were very similar to what came out of World War II. By the time John McCain was flying, much more advanced radar, much better capability. You, You have to tip your hat to people like John Glenn. When I when I look at it, 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 what we're talking about here, it is about the deployment. As Pim was mentioning, the boats in the water today, the the aircraft ships. carrier. Excuse me, ships. So ships. what I know. Yeah. Spoken so like just, a real Navy man. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, ships. got nailed nailed that. Mm-hmm. As far as I got, Admiral Stravitas was a Grumman canoe. <laughs> when, <laughs> with wings. Yes, with wings. Within this, Admiral Stravitas, is a new technology. Would Senator McCain know the two technology? Could he land a plane on one of these new carriers we have? In a minute. And I will tell you that uh, actually that technology makes it, Tom, so you could probably land a plane <laughs> on an aircraft carrier. That's how good it is. No, seriously, John McCain uh, was an intuitive, lifelong learner. And I think that's a very important yeah. quality in a leader, that ability to change and step into new technology. And John McCain did that every day. That's why he was so yeah. important on the Senate Armed Services Committee, because he knew those technologies so well as he was uh, funding them for us to take them to war. Well, let's finish up this discussion before we get back to uh, the work at hand. Your wonderful book and my book of the year, The Leader's Bookshelf, had a 70, 80, 90 books in it. For our listeners, what is the book in your The Leader's Bookshelf that has the most to do with uh, Senator McCain? I think the one that would reflect the most would be another prisoner of war story, and that's James Stockdale, who you'll recall, Tom, was uh, at one point vice presidential candidate with Ross Perot. He and his wife, Sybil Stockdale, and his wife, Sybil, wrote a book called In Love and War, 
about Stockdale's time in the camps, alternating chapters between the two of them. It's a, a love story that transcends war and is also uh, brings to focus what John McCain went oh. through in those camps. Let's come back with James Stravitas, the Tufts. James Stockdale Pym, uh, buried at the Naval Academy, and Mr. McCain will join him. Yes, uh, he was, uh, Admiral Stockdale was also, he was uh, shot down uh, in North Vietnam. That was in uh, September of 65, 1965. We'll come back with James Stravitas, lots to talk about on our international relations film. I liked where you were going uh, there with the boats at hand today, and uh, ships, Boats, ships. Yeah, well, it, it, I got to say also, you know, just over the weekend, there was a report that there were, there were three Russian uh, warships yeah. uh, that were spotted uh, passing through the Bosphorus. Yes. And that connects Turkey. Well, let's let's come issue. back and yeah. talk to James Stravitas about that. Uh, more typical uh, themes. But we thank him for his comments on uh, Senator uh, McCain. John Golub with us listening to the opening show festivities. And there's sort of that August end and school used to start Wednesday of Labor Day. And that's sort of when you reallocated your portfolio. And as we all know, anybody with parents, we hate it. It's all starting earlier and earlier. We're there now. How do you reallocate this morning? Uh, Well, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure that you really do reallocate. But you and I were talking about this before on TV. The real question is how much of your money do you put in technology and how how strong are within these your equity investment where do you put it in tech yeah, yeah and and i think um right right now the, these companies are just so powerful in their ability to earn and their potential upside and even as importantly the damage that they're doing to other large parts of the economy in the process of their success is just making them look relatively so much more attractive. Relatively attractive. And that goes to the idea of value trap. Where's the value trap in the market? Our listeners, they're going to make decisions. They're in cash. They've missed the bull market. Where are we 12 months trailing? I can bring this up in a Bloomberg quickly with the WEI function. It's only up 18% double digit in the last 12 months. Okay, fine. Where's the value trap? That I want to buy cheap, but that's a mistake. Well, I will tell you, when, when I'm talking to traditional value investors, they're finding it hard to find anything that looks really cheap. But I think that perhaps the area might be in consumer staples companies that have that were very expensive, have fallen a fair bit, are a little bit cheaper than the market right now. But their their brands are just getting demolished the, by know. technology. And we are changing the way that we're buying things because you can, you know, have, uh, you know, just search well, on Google or, or, or Amazon. I'm going to pick up a major consumer, something you buy at the grocery store all the time, folks. And revenue growth is flat with a hope and prayer of single digit growth uh, into the future versus a, a, a major tech company where in 90 days you can get two years of revenue growth that you get in a food company. And and I know that you you love the idea of cash flows, but if you look at the price for per cash flow on these tech companies, they're trading at a discount to the market, partially because investors don't fully believe that this growth can continue right. into the future. And I think that they're likely going to be wrong. And part of this is the management of those tech companies. Is it safe to say that, that they're not making 
the accounting and capital deployment mistakes of previous tech bull markets, I think there's a little more responsibility out there. Yeah, maybe that, or it may just be that, that some of these stories are, are coming of age. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was mentioning this again on, on, on the, the TV show this morning, but if you look at the revenue, uh, revenue chart of um, Amazon versus Walmart, one of them, you know, which is the Amazon line, just looks like it launches, that it was at one pace for a period of time. And then all of a sudden, the revenues and profits, mm -hmm. as we all became more comfortable with right. these types of brands. And, and, this, and it's not only that one company, but others as well. How do you buy tech if our listeners say, I don't want to buy just the three names everybody else owns. Do well, you buy an ETF or? Yeah, I mean, you, you can buy it? an ETF. You can buy a broad portfolio. Mind, mind you, you know, there, there's a whole, there's, obviously there's, there's, there's dozens or hundreds of companies that, that are part of that, that ecosystem. And, and yeah, you don't want to buy just five or seven names. Um, and and there's, there's success stories in everything. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, if you even look in areas like REITs, um, you know, real estate investment trust, which wouldn't be what you think about technology, but um, the most exciting companies there are companies that are building data centers um, for cloud computing, and those are in interesting plays. Um, you're seeing that in, you know, in, in innovative consumer companies that are using um, technology. So it's not just a yeah. narrow group. Our David Wilson does a great equity update in the nine o'clock hour, sort of like the ten stocks of the day that are moving in that. And I have been really quite taken by the. The, the idiosyncrasies of each retail story. Now, retail's got to react to Amazon. We all understand that as well. How do you, how do you strategize about retail and the cacophony of the American consumption uh, well, pattern? Well, I think, you have, I think you have a couple of stories here. One is that in the near term, these, these companies are doing uh, surprisingly well because the American consumer is in great shape. And the, you know, the unemployment rate is low. Wages are beginning to rise, which has other side effects. But the consumer is in super shape, and that's helping um, a lot. But the question is, is it masking um, perhaps yeah. the, the long-term story? What does your research story? people say at Credit Suisse? And I think that the long-term story is, is, is somewhat dire for many of these mm -hmm. um, brick-and-mortar names. But, but no different than people who have invested in Japan where it was for 20 or 30 years a downward trend line but with periods of brilliant <clears throat> jumps yeah. where you wanted to play play the game right now maybe one of those times where retail even yeah. though it's on a downtrend looks absolutely brilliant because the consumers in great shape. What about mid cap small cap? I think that large cap companies are probably going to continue to do uh, to, to outpace Why? Them. Um they're in a in a world where again the economy is good right now, but in a world where the economy has been tighter, where, where managing margins has been the the key to success, larger companies have just done a better job of managing those expenses and margins. John Golub with us, Credit Suisse, as we look at the equity uh, markets. On an August afternoon, we had Admiral Stravitas on and wonderful comments on John McCain and talking about international relations. On this day, as we did with John Golub of Credit Suisse, a little different conversation. And we could do that with Fred Lane, with Lane Generational, which is a dead serious effort with Raymond James to actually talk to people about the emotion of money. Now, granted, you know, Fred Lane, what, what's your minimum investment? $200 million? 
You no, know, no, no. 500,000. 500,000, which is a reasonable number. And mm-hmm. to a lot of people, that's a pot. And other people, it's a rounding error. But the answer is, and I, I don't want to say, what's a Dow going to do? Should I be in the market? I want to talk about how the sweat is different now from the kids than it was 20 or 40 years ago. You've got to deal with the emotion of families, the generational, and how are the kids different than they were a generation ago? Well, I, I, I don't think the kids are so different. I think we as parents in some, in some cases have been overly concerned with our kids' emotional well-being and maybe haven't asked them to do enough chores and be self-sufficient enough. I'm saying this about my own children as well. Um, but I think in general, the, my concern is that the next generation um, will, I think, find it a little harder to accumulate capital than this past generation has found it. The baby boomers have found it easier because there were so many of us entering the economy that dr- drove GDP growth. Mm-hmm. And I think the um, I think today's world's a little different. I think it's going to be harder to accumulate capital. I think global right. growth was, is going to be, over time, it's going to be declining, and that's going to make it harder to accumulate capital. In the old days, you had a cash flow off of a pot of money, and you could write Ignatz's tuition to whatever school. Today, Pim, correct me if I'm wrong, it's overwhelming. It is for, for families and generations, it's just overwhelming. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with somebody with a pot of money who says, look, I can't do this because I can't write the checks. I got to dip into capital. Well, my cl- actually, my cl- Pim, do you want to talk? No, to no, 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 really. Excuse I, me. No, we're I, no, taking no. notes. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I listen, I. Most of my clients aren't in that, aren't directly in the crosshairs of that dilemma. However, I think the question, and I'm, and I'm glad it's being asked, increasingly is: Is there a good return on investment in a college education? The the rack rate, the the rate that's supposed to be paid, f- frequently is not. Okay, so you know, you go, average university, maybe they're it's seventy thousand, seventy five thousand all in, but magically they come up with a scholarship for. 10, yeah, but 15. your kid could put the puck in under the crossbar from thirty well, feet out. Well, he was different. I mean, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Both my kids were different because they were hockey players, okay. and that's rather unfair. They were heavily recruited uh, yeah. athletes, and that and that they're they're put in a different class. But for the average, the really smart, hardworking kid, he's probably not going to get scholarship help if his parents have means. Oh, and, really? And the, and the worst people, that the people who are the worst off, I should say, are the people who are making two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year because they're making enough and they've been good savers and they put money away and they have equity in their home. And the universities don't want to hear about the fact that they need help. And so, you know, frankly, a lot of those kids are going to end up um, the beneficiary of their parents' largesse, and the parents are going to end up with a lot less in the, in the way of retirement income. And it's, it's an unfortunate situation. That's one of the reasons I say to everybody, all clients, let me meet your children. Let's get the magic of compounding going when they're young, 25, 30 years old. Put away ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year consistently every year. That adds up by the time you're fifty. It's a lot of money by the time you're fifty. Fred, Fred Lane, I want to ask you about uh, the context in which we kind of do all these comparisons. Mm-hmm. You know, and and one of the things I've kind of noticed is everyone's trying to compare now to a period, let's say, after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that as the anomaly, right. not everyone had any money 
I mean, no one had any money. I, I can remember conversations around the, 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 the dining room table where when asked about the Depression, my father would say, what Depression? No one had any money before, no one had any money right. during, and no right. one had any money afterwards. Right. And I'm wondering whether we're comparing this to some nostalgic golden age that really didn't exist for most people. Look, the standard of living for the average Amer from Americans in general is breathtakingly high. There's no question about it. Uh, and yet, by comparison, when we see the super wealthy and the very wealthy, all a function of the accumulation of wealth that's gone on, um, you know, cer certain people are going to feel as if they've missed out. They've missed, missed because they only have two cars mm -hmm. and they have a boat and they don't have a summer home and oh, too bad. And, and I'm not saying that dismissively. Yeah. I'm not saying that dismissively or risively, uh, but I'm, I'm saying it in a different in a different fashion, which is the the wealth effect has created a class of human being, a class, a small class, who are unbelievably wealthy but you know it's a function time you know you you remember i remember pim in 1976 when i came to wall street the dow was at 600 going to 400 if you had just put money into the market it didn't matter what you did you know you 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 would accumulate tremendous levels of capital but you have to be in the game in order to benefit from the game patient and also unemotional staying the course staying the course you make adjustments of course right. but no pun intended you but but nonetheless, um, you have to be in the game and you have to yeah. be unemotional. And and frankly, you know, when there's a rollover in the market, yeah. bingo, that's the time to be putting money to work. Where I grew up, it was people that bought Kodak, you know, from Frank Strong and George Eastman, or they bought a company called Haloid, which became a, a company called Xerox. You must have clients who bought Apple for a song or Amazon when they sold books. What do you advise them to do when it becomes 20 and 30 and 40% of a portfolio? How dare you sell that? Do you write puts again? What do you do with a huge gain that overweights a portfolio? Well, I think writing some, some calls against it and having some, having some of that stock called against you makes sense. I mean, you know, there comes a point when there's over-concentration in a portfolio. I'm talking about mass. I'm not talking about some cutesy pie academics out of MIT. No, you're talking I'm talking about, about huge right. over-concentration. Right. If someone is 50 or 80 or yeah, 90% exactly. of their portfolio yeah. in one stock, you have to caution them to diversify because things happen, right? Now, it's, it, it's, it's tricky because, um, I mean, I have a client who owns tens of thousands of stock as a result of being on a board. Um, and the stock has continued to appreciate and appreciate and appreciate and appreciate. It's very well positioned. It's in the life sciences, healthcare sector. But well, it it's fifteen percent of this individual's net worth. So it's not excessive. It, it's a little excessive, quite honestly, but there's enough resources so it's it's okay. But um mm -hmm. it, it you know look we as you I think you know Tom, my portfolio for my growth investors is fifteen stocks. We say we don't rebalance, but we do. When we get to 11 or 12 or 13%, we have to rebalance. It's imprudent not to. So we've owned companies, you know, certain companies. Yeah, but, companies but Pim, this is against, and, and, and Fred and I are on the same page on this, full disclosure, folks, against the industry of rebalancing if you get to 3 or 4% of a portfolio. And think of all the gain you lost yeah. on Apple or Amazon if you were smart enough to buy them. Right. I, I mean, I, so you know, many. There's a whole list of stocks. Look at the yeah. top 100. I mean, basically, I mean, is it too too much, Fred, to say it's basically on the edge of Sequoia? You and I are talking about a model that really harkens back to the the genius of Sequoia. Absolutely. Listen, yeah. I mean, concentration matters. You you yeah. have to you you can't if you own the market, you will perform like the market. 
If you want to outperform the market, you have to be concentrated, which means you have to have a point of view and you have to have sectors and companies that you know well that you feel will, will perform in a yeah. superior way. And that's a focus on secular growth, in my experience. Buy stocks now? Yes. Um, although new money coming in, I'm telling my clients, look, if, you, if, you're, if you're the kind of person who's going to have a regret that we buy at this level and it goes down 10% because of it, which I'm not predicting, but if you're going to live with deep regret and you're not going to, you'll get that back within a year or two, there's an alternative. And so certain clients were putting money into 90 and 180 and 270 day and 360 day CDs. And when they when they mature, we put the money to work. So we're kind of dollar cost average. Yeah. It's a psychological thing. And yeah. it's not really a it's you not can't. compelling to me to be doing it because this, I don't think we're we're in I don't right. think we're ready for a recession yet. This was valuable, but it's not why we booked you. Are the Toronto Maple Leafs just totally loaded this year? Is it gonna be like a joy for you to go to Boston, Fleet Center, Boston Garden, whatever, and see the Toronto Maple Leafs? It's never a joy to go to Fleet because the Bruins just don't have the skilled players that I like to see play. Oh, really? <laughs> I like to see the opposing teams. Boston has had, always had a tradition, in my view, Bobby Orr being the great exception, of not having flashy, sk highly skilled, great skating players. That's they just true. Don't. They just don't. They and don't play ECAC hockey. I mean, get, you know, cut to the chase, right? Right. <laughs> Fred Lane with us on ECAC hockey and, of course, with Lane Generational uh, with Raymond. You have some interesting insight there, folks. Right now, Aaron Brown with us with UBS as we look at uh, where to place the money. And the big difference, Aaron, is all of a sudden there's a yield in the short-term space. Are we back to normal equity and bond correlations? Yeah, I think that we are back to what I think is going to persist for some time, which is a st negative stock bond correlation. I think that's really important for asset managers and particularly for us as an asset allocator in that given the fact that the stock bond correlation is negative, it helps actually for asset allocators to be long stocks and be long bonds as a diversifier. So you actually can stay longer stocks and have a larger weight of allocation to equities in your portfolio, given the fact right. that the stock bond correlation is negative. I mean, how 2006 has been that long, right? It has. And we think it's going to persist. What could turn it negative is if we were to see inflation spike. Well, Pim, go ahead. Well, please. I was going to ask about the earnings boom that you're seeing in U.S. companies particularly and where they're going to use the money that they make. Are they going to be paying down more debt? And that means that there's going to be less supply of corporate bonds. So that's that's likely right. I think that you are going to see them continuing to pay down debt. But I think that particularly right now, given the fact that rates are still low, that the expectation that rates are going to rise, you are still going to see, I think, pretty lofty bond issuance, um, which is one of the reasons, actually, that we are negative high yield right now in our asset allocation portfolios. Well, Aaron, to equities. Aaron Brown with us, and we will uh, continue. Right now is, is such a tradition, Pim, is a moment of silence at the New York Stock Exchange it is more often, but today, uh, most poignant, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, a moment of silence uh, for the passing of uh, Senator uh, John McCain, former Navy aviator, and uh, also uh, really a maverick yeah. uh, in the on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And in New York, of course, Senator Schumer talking about renaming the Russell Building in Washington for John McCain. Let us listen into the quiet at the New York Stock Exchange. 
the New York Stock Exchange in honor of uh, John McCain. We've seen this many times, Pim, and of course, uh, as, as we come up on September 11th, I should announce uh, within the remembrance of September 11th that I'll be with Cantor Fitzgerald again, uh, this, uh, once again this year with Scarlet Fu. Yes. And their, uh, their uh, efforts to remember uh, September 11th. Let so us continue. Why don't you continue yes, Aaron with uh, Aaron Brown of uh, UBS, Managing Director, Head of Asset Allocation. Uh, is asset allocation uh, something that depends on the perspective of UBS or the perspective of the client? It's a great question. It actually, we have our own capital market assumptions and our own asset allocation views. There are certain parameters that clients when we're speaking with clients, they'll set for us and with us. And so they'll ask us to take a specific overweight to an asset class or to a country, or in many cases to hedge, if we're talking to a sovereign wealth fund, to hedge the underlying currency that they transact in. Also, what we're seeing increasingly is specific clients want to increase their private market uh, asset allocation views. So whether it's into real estate, into hedge funds, into venture capital, or into real assets like real estate, timber, uh, other commodities. So a lot of times, certainly we will have our own views and we have our own capital market assumptions that underpin how we allocate. But a lot of the dialogue that we have with clients is understanding what their parameters are and what they either want to include well, or exclude in terms of asset allocation. Well, the, the, re the reason I ask this, and, and I'm glad you mentioned these, the, these situations, is because risk is a two-edged sword, right? At Absolutely. least a two-edged sword, maybe a nine-edged <laughs> sword. But uh, the reason being that risk is great when you're making money. But do they really understand the risks that they're taking by asking to go into these private investments that may lack liquidity? It's interesting because if you rewind a couple of years ago in terms of the asset allocation conversations that we were having, they were looking to mitigate risk. They were looking to lower their equity allocations. Now that we're, you know, several years in, ten years into the bull market, equity assets have outperformed. You know, certainly what their expectations are. We're now actually seeing the opposite conversations having, and clients wanting to increase risk, willing to take more risk on, potentially more illiquidity risk as well, in order to earn a higher return. And so you, the question, I think, is prudent, which is, is this the right point in the cycle to be doing that? Mm -hmm. And I think given how well real, you know, um, private market assets have performed, there right. is a willingness to be able to take that illiquidity risk. The one thing I will say is there are, from our asset allocation studies, there are benefits to diversification, to expanding the asset classes and the remit in which you're investing in. You know, the question Can is- Can you be though, too diversified? I'm sorry, say it again? Can you be too diversified? Absolutely, you can be too diversified. It's a diversified. huge risk, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. It's been one of our themes for the show today. I mean, not that you want to own only Apple or only Amazon and look like a genius, but, you know, as Peter Lynch called it, diversification is a tangible issue. Yeah, and that's why I think you really have to be critical in terms of the interplay between tactical asset allocation, which we define as inside as 12 months, and longer-term asset allocation, which we define as 12 months plus. How do you respond to clients, very quickly here, how do you respond to clients that diversified out and were under-invested in equities and they're angry? I mean, so a lot of the studies we're doing now are for those types of clients. And we think that it's 
right now in the cycle, you should still be long and be overweight equities. And we don't think that it's too late to be overweight equities at this point. But mm -hmm. we understand that over the next three years, we're predicting that we will have a recession. So you have to be really manage that tactical yeah. risk as well. Aaron Brown, thank you so much with UBS today on uh, the battle of asset allocation. This has been great, Pim, to have uh, Fred Lane with us and then Aaron Brown. Really, you know, it's, it's like that time of year. Yes. And also just to, you know, be a little patient and don't get emotional. Well, that, well easier said than done, particularly with a... Because we talked to James Trevitas earlier about uh, the Navy and John McCain. It is appropriate to talk to the 22nd Attorney General of Arizona about John McCain in Arizona. And this is Grant Woods, who uh, is the rarest of rare in American politics, someone within the middle territory of his Republican Party. Grant Woods, wonderful to have you with us. And particularly, I would suggest, out of New York and Washington, the focus is on John McCain of the East, of Annapolis, and of the Naval Academy, where he'll be buried. How divisive was John McCain within Arizona Republican politics? Well, that's a good question, and thank you for all you're doing uh, here to, to honor Senator McCain and talk about his amazing life. Um, well, I think um, as time went on, uh, there was a big difference, as, as I think we see around the country, between the hardcore activists in the Republican Party, and they were generally not very supportive of Senator McCain uh, and haven't been for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you had the general um, population there that, you know, just Republicans throughout Arizona. And obviously he was very popular there. He won handily every time that, that he ran. So, you know, when you go to the Republican meetings uh, with the hardcore, it, w it wasn't pretty. Uh, <laughs> You know, when, when he when he ran for uh, president in, in 08, and they uh, they did their little election at the state Republican meeting, and they endorsed Duncan Hunter for president, <laughs> not John McCain, and uh, that didn't work out too well for them, I don't think. Um, but uh, it was typical. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just it's just the way it goes. It was uh, they were pretty hardcore, and they didn't like the fact that. Um, he regularly worked with people across party lines. Mm -hmm. uh, Grant, can you explain the what seemed to be the personal enmity between President Donald Trump and Senator McCain? Why did that exist? <clears throat> I don't think, um, I think it's a one-way street, to be honest with you. I think um, Senator McCain, um, you know, he's, as everyone knows now and has reflected upon, he had quite the remarkable life. And he had been up against um, different powerful forces his entire life. So here in his latter years, uh, when Donald Trump uh, entered the picture, that was no big deal for John McCain. John McCain was going to be John McCain. And that means he was going to say what he thought and do what he thought was right for the country. And um, he didn't really um, didn't really engage in uh, any of this um, uh, personal enmity. Uh, on the other hand, they really did seem to get under 
Donald Trump's skin. And um, I think that's just because it's reflective of the men. Um, and um, President Trump's been very, um, very good at uh, ridiculing uh, people to the point where they ultimately back down and go away or um, or get on board. And that that just wasn't going to happen with John. But I can tell you over the uh, last couple of years, so since since Trump announced until uh, until now, um, it really wasn't personal. It didn't really uh, bother him. These insults or slights or all of that. The only one that got that bothered John was when uh, he said that John wasn't a hero um, because he was captured. And and I promise you, it was not because of him taking a personal insult at that, yeah. or less, yeah. but it was about the other POWs yeah. and the fact that here in their later years, they had to deal with this right. issue. That's not an and right. he really resented that, I will say. Yeah. Grant Woods, one of the most poignant uh, images we've seen as we speak of John McCain was him going up an airplane stairs with Rob Portman of Ohio. I would suggest you and Senator Portman represent the dinosaurs of the Republican Party, the dying breed, maybe with Olympia Snow of Maine, of some form of moderatism. How risky is your Republican Party of doing a wig, if you will, of wandering into the trap of the Whigs of 1850, 1852, and on to the death of 1856. Is that a legitimate risk out in Arizona? I, I think so, uh, for sure. And um, uh, I think it will happen here in Arizona, and I think it will happen across the United States if things don't change. And uh, as Senator McCain always said, if, if for no other reasons, he'd like for you to do things for the right reason, but if for, for no other reasons, look at the demographics. And uh, if if the Republican yeah. Party is going to be anti-Hispanic, uh, uh, anti-minorities, if it's going to be, um, uh, if it really isn't going to stand up for the Constitution and just be divisive uh, between groups, then there really is no future there. And if you talk to people who are under the age of, I don't know, let's say 35, they don't understand why the Republican Party acts that way. They don't see race necessarily as as even an issue. They don't see discrimination against um, people because of their sexual orientation as as an issue. Why are you people still talking about these things? And I think as we go forward, um, Republicans are going to have to remember what they're all about, which is limited government. Uh, which is uh, strong national defense and uh, working with our allies. And most importantly, from John McCain's perspective, we have to stand for um, what he stood for, and that is for basic human rights right. in the United States around the world. And if we don't stand for that, if it's just a, a party about me, 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 which is the opposite of John McCain, mm. then, um, then it probably deserves to go away. Okay. Well, I just want to uh, reintroduce, uh, speaking with uh, Grant Woods, uh, former attorney general of the state of Arizona and a former chief of staff uh, for uh, Senator John McCain when he was uh, in Congress uh, as a congressman. Uh, Grant, just tell if you can a little bit. There's a story that maybe not a lot of people know having to do with uh, how Senator John McCain requested a combat assignment in the Vietnam War, and he was 30 years old. Uh, when he was assigned to the USS Forrestal, and he escaped death on the Forrestal uh, during a horrendous fire. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, well, yeah, that's where he he wanted to be, where the action was. Uh, you know, he was um, he was quite the character, um, always. <laughs> and in those days, uh, he was kind of your Tom Cruise stereotypical <laughs> fighter pilot. You know, live hard, play hard, and um, and he wanted to be. He he wanted to be in combat, and then when he went on the, he was on the forest pole. He was on the deck that day, and um, uh, that was just one of the big tragedies of, of all time in our military. And I know, I know, Josh told me. Uh, I mean, there was a guy. I forget I forget what his nickname was, but there was a guy who would wash your window of your of your jet uh, just before you were getting ready to take off. So they were all lined up. And this guy always gave him a thumbs up, and, and he said something, some little phrase. And so there's John in there in the cockpit. The guy does that, and then all of a sudden there's this huge explosion uh, with one of these bombs that gone off. And, the, and he looked down. Uh, there was a fire and then another big explosion. And when he looked down, that, that guy who he knew very well, who was his friend, was gone. He had evaporated into the air. And somehow John got out of that plane before the next huge explosion and made his way uh, across the deck, whereas, you know, many, many people didn't. Um, And I think the remarkable thing there, which uh, doesn't surprise anyone, is that almost immediately he asked to uh, go to another ship so he could get back in the air and back fighting for our country. Well, Grant Woods, thank you so much. And short notice, greatly, greatly appreciate your attendance today, Mr. Woods. A close close friend and advisor to John McCain in Arizona. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 